What's up, everybody? This is Iron Mike Stedman. And as always, I want to thank you for tuning into my show, Dog Whistle Branding. For a while now on the show, I've been geeking out about direct-to-consumer brands, which is why I was so excited for this episode's guest, Brian Welfell, CEO of The Beard Club, a D2C brand that helps men look their best by providing high-quality grooming products at affordable prices delivered right to their door. I met Brian back in the summer of 2020, shortly after I launched Thrive, an entrepreneur program I run for our kids at Ironbound Boxing. Brian was interested in what I was doing at Ironbound, gave me some advice, and even hired one of our kids to do some content work with them. After learning about the brand and using their products, I became a huge fan. I even had an opportunity to be featured in their video series, Before the Beard. Brian initially started out as a Beard Club advisor before stepping in to take the reins as CEO in the summer of 2018. The Beard Club initially started out riding the coattails created by the Dollar Shave Club that kicked off the billion-dollar D2C movement, but eventually the Beard Club carved out a lane of their own. On the show, Brian and I talked through what led him to invest in the company and the market opportunity he saw, along with his views on best practices for modern D2C brands. Brian is the real deal. He's an operator and understands firsthand the sweat and grit that goes into scaling D2C brands. I'm pumped to finally get him on the podcast and hope you get value out of our conversation on today's show. All right, Gunny, get them ready. Yo, saddle up, lock and load. You're listening to Dog Whistle Branding, brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media and the Lions Pride, where we provide no fluff and high impact brand strategy and business coaching for veteran owned businesses to keep you in the fight and not face down in a rice paddy. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the godfather of Dog Whistle Branding, founder of Ironbound Media, and business coach at the Lions Pride. Before we jump into the show, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes, or visit our website, dogwhistlebranding.com, to stay up to date on all things DWB. All right, get out your pen and paper, and get ready to build a Dog Whistle brand. Saddle up, lock and load. Brian and Rob, welcome to Dog Whistle Brandon. What's going on, gents? Man, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much, Mike, for uh, for having us. Um, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm glad Rob is joining me because this is actually my first podcast. Um, so I got I got a lot of ideas on what to share, but I, I know Rob will be honest with me if I'm boring the audience here. I've been trying to get uh, I've been trying to get these guys on the podcast for a minute. And here's why I'll tell you. So when I came up with the idea and the concept for Dog Whistle Brandon, Beard Club was one of the uh, first people I reached out to to come on the show. And I really didn't know that much about the D2C kind of movement. Right. I just been kind of coming out of my nonprofit Ironbound Boxing. I just got into producing content um, as Rob knows. But like I was saying in the preview, I'm really excited to bring you guys on now at this point. Because I feel like I'm becoming like the D to C guy in the little veteran space, you know, because so many I think, you know, when you think about creating products, right, um, it's probably like the basics of entrepreneurship. You know, like obviously you've got, you know, high level uh, SaaS products and stuff, et cetera. But when you think about makers and builders, they're making beard oils, they're making soap, they're doing all this other stuff. And they're figuring out, yo, how do I leverage um, online to help drive revenue? and really scale this brand. And when I think as a brand guy, right, D2C is like some of the most challenging um, spaces to operate in. 
but it's also the most exciting space because you have to be differentiated and you have to stand out. So you guys have nailed that, which is why I was excited to bring you on in the first place. But now in my own learning, I'm excited to learn about how you guys are, you know, thinking about growing Beer Club, but even taking us back to, you know, the origin story. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, I think um, direct consumer, it, it's to me, it is it is the opportunity. It's the way to for entrepreneurs to get involved and engaged. Um, you could have small wins in, small incremental wins is what brings you to real success. And um, coming out with a product and expecting it to get on the shelves of uh, mass retail is unlikely. Um, so really what happens with D2C, the reason it's been such a focus on any emerging brand is because you have this incredible direct relationship with your consumer where you can learn from the feedback. They'll let you know, honestly, if you come out with a shit product, they'll let you know. So this is the sort of thing where um, you know, it makes sense that it's D2C and I'm happy to share all of our learnings and any, any way uh, in the, the journey and the history here. So I'm excited to get into it. There's a lot of it. And like I mentioned, uh, feel free to push me along if, if any part of the story is getting boring. So I, I want to first thing I want to know is as a venture capitalist, right? You sold J Swipe, but then back in 2014, dating app, and then you start to play your hand in venture. What attracted you to D2C? Because even, you know, on your LinkedIn, you talk about, you know, you invest in digitally native brands. Yeah. So, so my, and, and if you look at our website, like it's, you mentioned it, um, what we look for is people or brands or businesses with a unique position in an audience um, and or a unique offering that's difficult, like with some barriers to entry. Because if you go out and try to compete in a commodity world, it's very difficult unless you have a very interesting edge on the supply chain to bring down the cost or to have a higher value proposition for whatever reason. So on direct consumer, it's all about connecting with people, understanding your audience, making sure that you're connecting high value products um, and high value solutions to everyday to problems that a, a lot of people have. So. First and foremost, you want to make sure that um, the audience you're picking isn't too small for there not to be a business, but that it's small enough to, to actually get some engagement and some real um, real traction in the community. So, um, I mean, I could get into the details on, um, on the things that interest us. Um, obviously, the, the Beard Club story, you mentioned J-Swipe. J-Swipe, another direct consumer play where I um, managed products. Uh, it's, a, it's a dating app for the Jewish community and um, where I managed products and I also managed customer acquisition. Um, so managed all aspects of the business um, and brought my experience with product development there. So um, anything that you do, and, and this is the way we look at it, is like this massive funnel, right? So you hear about funnels all the time in marketing, but realistically, I became obsessed with funnels during JSwipe, understanding how many people are hearing about us, then of the people who hear about us, how many people click to learn more, then from a click, how many people install the app, then from the install, how many people uh, actually en engage in a meaningful way in a high value action, all the way down to what is going to keep your business alive, which you always have to think about, which is dollars. How many people convert to a paid offering? So figuring out 
how to engage from a top level and what every step of that funnel looks like down to a paid customer and even after they pay if they churn out and don't you know they they tire of your product or you know there's something they have too much of it whatever the reason how do you get them re-engaged in the brand and what do your communications look like it's pretty much developing like an automated um, engine for speaking to customers and for offering compelling experiences for an audience so that's where it all starts that's what's the same across all of our businesses whether it be j swipe beard club what, whatever business we're working on um it's this obsession with funnel to understand how do we reach the most people how do we con uh, compel them to to act and then ultimately how do we develop an offering that's valuable enough to pay for um and making sure that the economies and the cost of getting people into the funnel ultimately you can become profitable on it um and like i mean this is a lot of hindsight is 2020 stuff um i used to i got my experience working in a basement in poughkeepsie new york just developing product after product digital product thinking if you build it they will come and that is not the mentality to have only when i started on jswipe it was the first time when i said all right i gotta market this thing we gotta get it out there and that was the wild west days of facebook so facebook uh still is, uh, and meta now meta continues to be a you know a very interesting platform to acquire customers because they also own instagram um but realistically you have to figure out what the what the the offering is how to get in touch with the customer and pitch your pitch your value um that's really for me like what it boils down to is is the value compelling is um is the offering compelling and how do you get people to enter and how do you get people to ultimately buy i want to go back a step first i'm curious to know right there's been a lot of talk about SaaS, right you know yeah. it's like you build it once scale the hell out of it right yeah your overhead really is your team and your software developers and stuff etc but when people start talking about carrying inventory right that's yeah. just like money just sitting in a warehouse so as like yeah. an investor you know what makes you say hey i want to get my hands in d to c as opposed to I'm only focusing on digital products. If I could only focus on digital products, I would. <laughs> no, um, inventory is a big issue, right? Like it's definitely a risk. It's a, it's a risk that's added to any and all businesses um, when you have to take an inventory risk because the risk of not taking inventory risk is you got nothing to sell or you got too little to sell. So you get this great demand. So I would suggest looking for products or, or things where um, the cost of capital, the cost of the product to the initial inventory isn't too crazy. Um, it's just it's just something that um, I do like software businesses because if you could build compelling experiences and your cost of goods is an incremental quarter of a cent for each customer that you have join, um, it's obviously very good for gross profit. So gross profit, like, and again, I'm just gonna explain this for, cause I didn't know this stuff. And so if people are where I started on my journey, I'd wanna know what, what is gross profit. Um, gross profit is pretty much what, you, what you're gonna make on a per sale basis, how much money you make 
on a per sale basis just less the cost of the good. So it doesn't account for advertising, it doesn't account for your overhead salaries or anything like that. It's pretty much just the cost of that product and then um, how much you, you sold it for. Now with software, because your cost of your product is so little, it's servers and it's amortized across all of your user base, it could be like a fraction of a cent. So literally, it's like 100% gross profit. Now, that means if you could get that to scale, it's a very good business because all that profit goes to offsetting your overhead and everything else that you got going on. Um, I think the best businesses um, to, to, to make money to start, like for like for starting entrepreneurs who are starting out, it's really figuring out how to keep your overhead low, get to profitability. When you have profitability, you take those funds and you reinvest into something that might be higher risk, but higher reward. But that's the thing is trying to start out with something that's going to have like huge cost and overhead. Overcoming that is so difficult that you rather start with something that where your costs are, are small or lower. And the, the cost where it's small is a service business, but service businesses are more difficult to scale. Um, but I mean, I, I have such respect for guys who are like, you know what, I'm going to pound my day to day to make the dollar in order to take that and invest in what I foresee as, as the big opportunity. Because sometimes you cut your runway short. If you don't have that cash flow, that income to be able to reinvest and put into something that you know it's going to cost money and take money to lose, I mean, it's bootstrapping. You need to do something to make money in order to fuel what you your, your bigger risk, higher reward uh, plan. Um, and so for me, I started out um, building out a digital agency. I was doing service work um, like at a, at a traditional marketing firm. And then I built out their digital footprint um, and paid me a decent salary. But, and, and you'd work, I, I never was a nine to fiver, I always give a little bit more. Uh, so I, let's say I worked nine to seven or eight, and then I'd work from seven or eight to midnight to 1 a.m. on my own stuff, trying to build product. As I mentioned, failing many times, just building software products in a basement in Poughkeepsie, New York. And uh, that's how I refined my skills. I put a lot of money into developers. Some of the developers I worked with there are guys I still work with today. They're the guys who are actually making the products that, that we're building out now. Um, so even though those businesses weren't successful, the experience, the network, and everything that I built is the foundation of what I build every day today. Okay, so Beard Club um, was a gut a gut reaction. Uh, met the founder, um, super compelling and um, visionary founder. Like who could tell a story and pitch it really well. And I was actually meeting with him uh, on a different project. And um, at this time, the Dollar Shave Club warehouse video was going viral. This is 2015, and these guys created a video for what they called Dollar Beard Club. So it was a parody video. And I said, wow, that's a compelling that's a compelling video. I think the audience will respond well to it. So I put in some money so they could start an e-com business um, behind it. And sure enough, the video they start they put up a website, 
the video uh, gets released and the media loves it. It's an alternative to something that was already going viral. And this is all called earned media, which nowadays is very difficult to get because everything in PR is now pay to play. Anything consumer facing is pay to play affiliate stuff. But back then there was still some good consumer coverage. A lot of people covered it. Um, and so it drove a lot of top of funnel. And they set up the website so it would make sales of beard oil. And so sure enough, first 12 months does 10, 10 million in revenue. So product market fit, big check mark. Um, and realistically, I mean, it showed that there was an audience that was looking for something that they weren't getting elsewhere. Um, so yeah, that's that's how that all started. So, And then I was a passive advisor. The guys were doing great because they were really focused on earned media. Um, late 2017 though, like the business was inclining and and floating around you know that that 10 to 14 million dollar uh, revenue number um, then it came into some trouble where the earned media wasn't coming in anymore um, the performance marketing the small amount of budget they had on performance marketing was working and so um, I just had a heart to heart with the founders to say you know I, I believe in the business but um, in order to bring it there we got to take a different path from earned media so we bought controlling interest in the business and then in 2018, um, we really just cut everything that didn't work, that wasn't adding incremental dollars. And that's a tough spot to be for any leader when you got to cut people and, and team and change the way things are, are what had made past success. Um, and then just reinvest in what did work. And that's how we turned it around. Um, just by incremental improvements from thereafter. Um, and again, it was market expansion product expansion and then it's been five years it's amazing to think it's been you know four or five five years since then um and uh you know fortunately we've been we've been lucky we don't have publicly disclosed numbers but um as rob would say i'd venture to say we're one of the biggest if not the biggest um in the category of, and um we're emerging fast so uh there's a lot of exciting stuff going on i want to talk about that um on terms of positioning and just so our listeners understand right dollar shave club came out of a venture studio in california called science right mm -hmm. um they ended up exiting for a billion dollars plus to unilever so there was this mm -hmm. huge kind of market opportunity out there but the brand yeah. guy in me right i know what you did but the brand guy in me is like always hesitant hesitant of comparisons in terms mm -hmm. of like we're like the anti-coke you know what right. I mean? Because yeah. all it does is drive attention to cope. But at the yeah. same time, there is this opportunity to leverage existing demand and drive it towards you, right? Yeah. So talk to us about your thoughts on how they kind of position themselves without doing it in a tacky way of like, yeah. oh, we're the, the opposite of Dollar Shave Club just for men with beards. Yeah, so I mean, realistically, the, the success was around like the disruptor story on for Dollar Shave Club was more a cost savings thing. Um, and so it's pretty much the, the the interest in the video is like it's this warehouse, it's like not a beautiful big company, it's this warehouse that's sourcing a more cost effective product that works the same. Um, and it's a cool model. Um, it's limited in certain ways in terms of like perceived value by saying Dollar Shave Club or even Dollar Beard Club, which you know later changed to just beard club um 
it's very difficult to um, to make that something that a lot of people aspire to. So you sort of cap out eventually, and then there's it's a commodity play where you're sort of racing to um, to be the low cost player. And if you're looking to really change the way people groom and people like the way like it's very difficult to I mean if you have scale you can offer really compelling products for a low cost um, but at the same time like you want to constantly be elevating the experience for your customers so ultimately um, the comparison was definitely um, helpful because the business dollar beard club at the time rode that wave rode that wave of interest and it was a very masculine uh, play um, on um, you know on what dollar on on what Dollar Shave Club did, and I think that's still a message that resonates with uh, with everyone is like if guys who are wearing a beard they're after that masculine look, you know to to get to attract their uh, significant other, and um, you know that's that's ultimately what it's about. It's making sure that you're putting your best face forward. So that hasn't changed. And that wasn't different between Dollar Shave Club and Beard Club at the time when it launched. It was just a different method to get there. And uh, I would venture to say that the bearded method is a bit of a cooler one. Got it. No, that makes sense. And now I was going to ask you about the name change, right? But you're right. Like dollar kind of has implications. We're a volume play. But as we start to go a little bit more premium, you know, we can increase the uh, uh, cost per customer that comes through the website, et cetera. Right. Then we need to change branding. Yeah, and to me, it wasn't just about the cost side, right? Like we we did have price increases because, like, candidly, the business was losing money. Like, that's a quick way to go out of business. Like, you give your investors money to your consumer, uh, to your customers, and it'll only last for so long. You have to have a path to profitability. Everybody talks about. Um, finally, the markets have corrected and are respecting that path to profitability much more than they did historically. Um, it's always been like land grabs, like. Take investor money, see how much of the market you could get. And even if you're paying $50 to acquire a customer and you're only getting $30 in revenue from them, acquire them at a loss. So you're paying $300 million in advertising to do 150 in top line. That doesn't sound really good. Um, but there was a lot of venture backing for that, given that the, the market speculation was always there at the next step. Um, and what I mean by that is public companies. When a company goes public, um, public markets were just looking for growth stories. They weren't looking for like really meaningful paths to profitability. And I think Amazon set the precedence for that where, well, here's a company who was just growing out of this huge loss for a very long time and they managed to turn it around and they did. Um, but that doesn't mean everyone will. Um, it's a very different lifetime value of a customer. Um, so one thing that we look at is always, we call it unit economies. Does, does the dollars work on a per customer basis? It doesn't mean it has to work for every customer, but on the average, do you make money per customer, per, per, like, per customer? This is a very simple concept that seems like to, to anyone who does, isn't familiar with the venture capital world would be like, well, of course, how else are you gonna grow? But venture capital is actually set up to be like, these land grabs, these land grab opportunities where 
hey, as long as you're making top line revenue sales, we don't care, just throw more money at user acquisition and marketing, and eventually you'll make money. Um, anyway, I know that's a bit of a tangent. Uh, no, it's good. But, it's good. Yeah, and I was actually looking at, uh, there's these great videos on uh, YouTube from like Harvard Business School, the iLab thing, et cetera. And one of the videos had the CEO, the founder of HubSpot. And he was mm -hmm. talking about how in 2013, right, you would get all this VC money and you would just shovel it in the ads on Google. Yeah. And Google yeah. would like get it, like half your venture capital, right? Yep. Then HubSpot exactly. comes along and they're like, there's got to be a better way, especially for small businesses introducing kind of the inbound marketing. So I want to take yeah. a step back and say, hey, we have a lot of listeners that are better known, small business owners, they might have raised just a little bit of capital, right? And yep. they're, they're, they're developing their go-to-market strategies for their own D2C brand. And I know you talked about like the funnel and building awareness, yeah. but can you break it down for us at the tactical level? Like what advice yeah. would you give a, a D2C brand now in terms of building that awareness and convert yeah. people into paying customers, et cetera? So I'll give you the formula that we use um, and, and pretty much it's for across all of our businesses. Um, so you pretty much have two major expense centers when you're looking at a business. It's the customer acquisition cost and the cost of goods sold. Those are your main two costs. The rest of it, eat ramen noodles. Like, uh, <laughs> like I, am, I am a proponent for like just your general and administrative expenses keep as low as possible. Like just make sure these unit economies work. So let's put all that aside and just say the cost to acquire a customer and it can't be zero unless it's really viral and then you can sustain it. But any investor, if you're saying to your investor, oh, we're always only going to grow by word of mouth, uh, it's probably not going to get to the scale that they're looking for unless it's inherently viral. So by the way, dating apps are inherently viral because viral, um, so they're telling a friend on average, a customer is going to go out and tell two other friends uh, and each user. But most offerings, especially consumer packaged goods, are not viral. So you have these two costs, your cost of goods and your customer acquisition cost, which means if I want to acquire 100 users in a day, what's the cost per customer? OK, take those as a given. Right. Let's let's just use some assumptions here to say. Your customer acquisition costs, I'm gonna keep things low so I can understand them and follow my own math. Uh, 10 bucks for a customer acquisition and your cost of goods is $10. So your cost on it is 20 bucks, okay? That means <clears throat> that you have to charge the customer at least 20 bucks in order to have be, be profitable on the sale. Now, doesn't mean on the first order you need to make 20 bucks, but it means you eventually need to meet at least offset your cost of goods. So let's say on the first order, it's $10 for cost of goods, $10 for the customer acquisition cost, and you brought in 20 bucks. But this is a monthly subscription, right? And your average customers might stay six months. Well, You'll make you'll break even month one, month two. You still have your cost of goods, but you don't have your customer acquisition costs. So now you made ten dollars on the customer, and now you're actually making ten dollars a month on the customer. So by month six, was that fifty dollars profit? 
and you have out $60 roughly in cost of goods sold, and you have $10 out in customer acquisition costs. All of this, this is what tells you the, the retention, your average retention, which means how many months on average you're keeping a customer. And all of this is what gets you to like an, an understanding of what your unit economies look like. Then you got to make sure you're making enough money to offset your general and administrative and your overhead and everything else. But if you try to get all of your costs into the cost of goods sold, this is a very simple formula. So um, ultimately that the retention and the revenue, that numbers that you're doing, that's what represents your LTV or your lifetime value per customer. And this is in the world of averages. So you can't sweat it. Like don't set up your business so you You'll never lose money on a customer. A customer, realistically, in this world, you might not break it even till month three. So you might pay $30 to acquire a customer, $10 on cost of goods sold, and you only made $20 of revenue, right? Well, shit. But if your retention goes to three and a half months, you'll actually still make, uh, what, $5 at three and a half months. It'll be $5 at the end of it. You made profit of $5. It doesn't seem like a lot, but if you're doing this at massive scale and growing, that's that's okay to start because you might then figure out ways to cross sell that customer other things to get that lifetime value higher. So maybe in month four, you figure, oh, well, we could offer this other item and and then we're going to make more money on the customer. Um, and by the way, you can't be like you have to offer compelling value to your customers or they're going to leave you right away and you're never going to get a second order. So it might sound crazy to not make money on a customer until month three and a half, but realistically that might be what the market demands. Like if you, if you need to give your customer a compelling offering and your cost of goods are that high and the customer acquisition cost is because you're spending on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all these channels, like that just might be where it lands. It might be where it lands you. Um, so by the way, so there's a bunch of other metrics around this that we sweat day to day. Um, it's something called average first order value. Um, because a lot of times on a subscription, the first order is more expensive and then only a subset of products renew. And then there's also average order value on, on a blended basis across all customers for all orders. Um, this is all direct consumer language. If you go and sell on Amazon, you know, you have, you have an ad budget and a revenue number and your cost of goods, but you can't actually track it on a per customer basis. They give you some insight, but there's nothing you could do really with lifecycle communications to convince the customer to stay with you. Um, think about it as a relationship. If we're keeping a customer for three and a half months, we might send them a bunch of texts, a bunch of emails. And why are we doing it? It's because they need to learn about the product. They need to understand what the product is, how to use it, how to get the best value out of it. And these are necessary communications. So a properly set up direct consumer business has a very good understanding of its lifetime value, has a very good understanding of the average order value, the cost of goods, all these things. Um, and so, you know, initially your inkling might just be to say, Hey, what does it cost and how much, how much do I charge for it? But that's not enough because it doesn't take your marketing budget, your customer acquisition cost into, into account. Um, 
yeah, so this is this is the world of D2C. These are the numbers that we sweat every day. So let's make it real. Let's do a case study, okay? Yeah. So I'm the founder of a premium African tea brand, all right? Yeah. I came up with it, you know, in my basement, you know, with my partner. Now we're going to pop-ups in the DMV area and stuff, et cetera. And I'm yep. just, I'm at the pop-up all day, like 14 hours, set my little table up and everything. And I sell like $1,000 worth of premium African tea. Okay. Yep. How are they thinking about understanding that customer acquisition costs? So their time, if it wasn't them on the front lines, how much would it cost them to staff, staff the event, right? How much would it take for them to actually have someone there acquiring customers? And one other thing I'd put out there is the most valuable asset from that activity isn't necessarily the revenue from that day. It's the relationship that they got with that customer. Hopefully they got their email or they got their SMS and they've conveyed their core value and message. And so that customer doesn't become a customer for one day, they become a customer for a lifetime. So if I was doing it, I would say, hey, well, the way I would set it up is I'd say, you could have one thing of tea from me today, or if you buy a three month supply from, from me right now and sign up online for auto renewal, I'll give you 50% off your first order. Now, because human behavior, this isn't like manipulative, human behavior is not to remember, to opt in. People are busy. If you think they like your tea, right? And you should, right? You better believe it. <laughs> they should like the tea and they should like what it, where it's going to. They should be game to, and they could cancel any time, do whatever they want. They should be game to uh, support the brands and plan to continue to support it. Because the second they don't have tea, they're going to go to Starbucks. They're just going to get the easiest tea, right? So you need to add that convenience factor and create a relationship and start to think about the lifetime value of a customer and not just that sale. So your uh, the pop-up becomes more of a marketing play to build rapport and relationships with your customers and also give you feedback on uh, the product. Now, one of the things I think is a battleground for D2C brands that we're not paying attention to, particularly on the front lines, is that point of sale, which gets back to what you talked about. Did you capture their email address? Did they learn your brand story, right? Because a lot of times, first-time yep. founders, they're just measuring wins and losses off the revenue that they brought in. They're not measuring yep. you know, how many email subscribers did we get, you know, how many phone numbers and stuff we, we get. So that's yep. a million-dollar insight, all right? Now, I've been advising founders that you need to have a sales process for D2C, right? You can't yep. just post on social media. You can't just do all that stuff. Somebody needs to be driving revenue consistently for the brand. A lot of times that's pop-ups outside of pop-ups. And I want you to tell me if I'm yep. giving them bad advice. Somebody still needs to be picking up the phone and calling people, right? At least early Listen, on. A hundred percent. Look, if you were a salesperson and you only had to have three customers, you'd be calling those customers. You'd be taking them out to lunch. You'd be like procuring a relationship. It should be no different. The best direct consumer, the best, most successful direct consumer brands, it feels like they're engaged personalized with this personalized experience that's continuing to tell them the story that's continuing to engage them and add value to them that's the most successful ones like you look at the success stories of just like commodity players like Keurig like 
people are just gonna they get the machine and then they're just gonna keep buying the pods right yeah that's that's an exception that's the exception direct consumer and what i even like to call them like digitally native brands that's like you know like digitally native brands have the benefit of having this ongoing relationship with their customer and so like that's exciting that if that doesn't excite you get out of the business go do something else if you don't like talking to customers or setting up really compelling value propositions for for end consumers get out of the business because you're not going to last ultimately if your passion is just to make the tea and this is where different roles and people come into play this is I mean, the, the, the world is diverse for a reason. It's because we're all good at different shit. If everyone was good at the same thing, it wouldn't be a fun world to live in. So if you're good at the formulation, focus on product development and get someone else in there to tell the story. Um, if you're good at telling the story, you better make sure you have a back office that's going to support the promises you're putting out there. Um, so realistically, I think it's like being well-rounded is good, but ultimate success means you're pulling people in and looking at the unit economies and, and, make, and your profitability and growing the business with a, a community around you. And um, I mean, that's where I've been blessed to, to be working with some of the best people. Truly, my team, like people work with us um, because of our team, right? Like they come in because you're surrounded by A players. You're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. And uh, I mean, that's to me like goes back to what you're doing at Ironbound Boxing. Like, people are there because they want to be champs. They're not there because they're looking to check it in and sit on the sidelines. They want to be champions. And being a champion doesn't mean you have to be the leader or the only person at the helm. It means you got to surround yourself with a bunch of other like-minded people to go out and offer value. Forget about getting money, making money. You put out value, you're going to make money as long as you follow the rest of the steps, like focus on the unit economies. But like come together with like-minded people to put out value and people will recognize it. And do make sure that, uh, you know, you set things up because the second you bring in partners and other things, like you have to make sure that everything is fair, that you foresee bad things, that you foresee good things, and you set things up to succeed because a lot of businesses fail, not because the business is bad, but because the partnerships are bad or because the chemistry of the team is bad. So make sure, like, be transparent, be uncomfortably transparent with your team and with your partners, like to the point where it's like my where I bind but bond most with my partners is when we have conflicts, because the second you resolve it, you come back, you're stronger and you're, you're back on your mission together as a united front. Um, because if you got multiple fronts, it's you're not going to win. Yeah, all that stuff becomes toxic. And it's like, oh, man, yeah. I still got to, you know, we still got to run the business and got to do all these other things. And the so, weakest link, cut, cut the weakest link. I Don't guess, be scared to cut the weakest link because that person, that toxicity, like you could try to, if you could fix it, great. But if it's toxic, it's pulling back the rest of your team. I would venture to say a toxic player on a team is is much more impactful on the business than bringing in an A player. Yeah, you could have you, you need like ten A players to off, to offset someone who's toxic. <laughs> A lot of our leaders are uh, military veterans. They understand that, you know. Oh yeah. A, a yeah. bad Marine could be like toxic to the platoon. But yep. one of the things I guess I'm curious about um, from you is, all right, let's say you're ten thousand dollar, you know, 
D2C brand, right? And you're like, all right, I've built the website out. It's up and running. And we got to go to market, right? Yeah. One thing I've noticed, and this is why I talked about the sales is people are using the social media to drive sales, but nobody is maintaining that consistent reach out aspect, right? Yeah. We're just waiting on inbound. But the thing is that takes time, right? Yeah. And to put cash in the bank, you've got to have an outbound process. Yeah. So let's say, uh, let's go back, you know, you, let's say you're the founder of Beard Club, right? $10,000 and stuff, et cetera. How are you setting up that sales process um, to drive revenue? And how are you thinking about marketing at that stage, early stage? Yes. So this is where our approach is different. Like there's a lot of different approaches here, right? Like there's organic approach, which is word of mouth. It's hustling, it's going out and you're going to grow very incrementally slowly, right? What we look for is opportunities where we could really accelerate the curve, like really get it to ramp up. Because if you're just incrementally improving, um, it could be a good business for you, but it's not going to be a good business for investors, right? Investors want to know that there's scale, there's potential scale to it. So you want to invest in channels that you could scale up. Hustle, hustle to get that initial fire, that passion going. And doing the pop-ups is a great way to do it. But you got to figure out how to turn, how do you turn that one customer into four customers? And that, that, that's like the study of a viral coefficient. What is the chance it goes in from each customer you get, they're telling two friends to order. By the way, there's actually mechanics you could add to your website to get that, like referral bonuses, free free stuff like this. Like you're, you're a lot of the times you want to incentivize sharing. If you can incentivize sharing properly, you'll you'll organically get that that curve. But the way we do it is there's a bunch of um, media platform partners who have reach, they have an audience, they have audience that's consuming content, and they want ad dollars. They want to connect their audience, not just with advertisers willing to pay but with advertisers with offerings that is compelling to their audience. So when you're creating ads, you actually, TikTok says it best, don't make ads, make TikToks. And the reason they say this is because if you can engage the customer, they rather put an engaging ad in front of five people and make the same money than putting an, a boring one in front of a person and making that same money. Like, they rather they'll give you more exposure if your content is engaging and compelling. So don't like always be closing like yes, but like figure out an effective call to action while while you're teaching and adding value. Like people like the story, they like to learn about their health, they like to learn about um, how things improve their lives. So education, entertainment, that's at the core of what good ads look like. So what I would say is what we do is the customer acquisition costs. What that means is we're spending advertising dollars on ads, on creative. And Rob, who's on, he's great at making creative. He can speak authentically to the community in an engaging, authentic way because he's a bearded guy himself, like a big bearded guy. I, I have a smaller beard. I still, I still consider myself bearded. Rob would say I have, I have a baby beard. Can't call it a beard. 
<laughs> but I think a lot of a lot of our audience is just after a shorter beard, right? Because it's a cool look, it's easy to maintain, and um, you know it's a different look. Um, so ultimately, it's about taking ad dollars, putting it on content. And so if I spend ten dollars, I'm hoping that my first order. I'm going to get $20 of revenue and my cost of good is $10. So this goes into the world like I'll just list off some some terms that I'm looking at every day. CPM is cost per thousand impressions, cost per milli, right? This is in the ad platforms. So that's essentially the platforms will charge you a higher CPM if your content's not engaging, meaning they're going to charge you more to show your content if it's not engaging because they're like, hey, we're losing value to our audience. If your content's engaging, your CPM or your cost per thousand impressions, cost per thousand times it's view, shown to customers, but potential customers, it gets lower. CPC, cost per click. Now you're paying, you can have, you're paying each time someone clicks your ad. That's the cost per click. So eyeball and impression, click, like that's what you really want them to do to take action. Or they have CPA, cost per action. So your action can be actually a purchase. So your CPM could be $5, the cost per thousand impressions. Your cost per click could be $10 to get somebody into the door. And if your conversion rate's 50%, and this is a very high conversion rate, um, if you then your cost per action is going to be $10. So, and all of that works to, and then if your action is a purchase or a customer acquisition, your CAC or your customer acquisition cost is 10 bucks. So all those factors, like those are the things that we're monitoring every day, the health of like the engagement of an ad versus the cost per click versus the cost per action. All that stuff is what we are, we obsess about. And by the way, I'm not the one pulling the levers on this. There's agencies that do this really well. And when you interview them though, you gotta make sure they have prior success, can pull up a dashboard and show you how they're delivering success. Cause otherwise you're just giving your, your, your money to someone who uh, is probably not able to deliver. Now, but, I, um, I know we had Rob drop off, drop off. He was on the, he was in the car. Y'all probably got some yeah. bad, uh Wi-Fi or whatever. But one of the things I want to talk about is creative, right? Yeah. Uh, creating content. I shared the story about the CEO of HubSpot. You guys invested in content, it seems like, from the very beginning, right? You brought Rob on. He's been rock and rolling. I was privileged enough to be featured um, in one of your stories. Um, where do you see the opportunity for content moving forward? And where do you see its role with brands in general? Um. I mean, it's always, it's at the core of every good direct consumer business. Um, it's not an afterthought. It is very much the core of the business. So there's a lot of different types of, of content. All right. I'm going to just name a few that come top of mind. Like Rob is very good at like lifestyle and how to videos, right? He's, he's like the best at that stuff. Like just creating content that just is naturally engaging and he's talking about a topic that people are interested in or explaining how stuff works. Um, then there's more like awareness style, which might just be like unique and compelling uh, unboxing videos, like when somebody's like showing what you're gonna get. Um, 
I said testimonial. Um, there's CGI, like you could just do like um, really great looking product shots on a carousel. There's all tons of different types of creative that you can create. You never know what your audience is going to respond best to until you try it, though. Um, but uh, I think that's it's, that's what's important is it's making sure that you're talking about compelling stuff and you're creating content first and an ad second, right? Like you want it to be about helping people find solutions and then connecting them with your solution if it's helpful to solving the problem. Um, and so by what the way, that's... What do you say to the early stage founders that say, oh, we don't have enough money to invest in marketing? They probably don't. And I don't blame them to say that. Yeah. Um, what it what it means is you got to hustle to get that list, make the revenue. And then test marketing. This is why, like, I'm a big advocate for bootstrapping, right? Like founders should feel that. And you know what? You just because you're an entrepreneur doesn't mean you get to do what you want every minute of every day. Right. Like I'll do anything to make a brand succeed. I, I'm in the I, I still take out the garbage, clean the bathrooms. I'll do whatever the hell it takes to, to surround my team with success. Um, I'm their biggest cheerleader. That's my role. And ultimately, in the beginning, if you're starting your business and you're bootstrapping, sometimes that means you got to find a better way to guarantee money to fund your project. And you better come out when you when you do that, when you take a job or you're doing maybe you have a service business start to start. I love service businesses to start because like there's very clear value there. Like I love that. Like that to me, like I was watching a show on a guy who went from like just a YouTube video last night. I love like I get down the YouTube rabbit hole too. Started a landscaping business, worked his ass off. Bought a thirty thousand dollar truck to get into the trucking business. Now he's doing two hundred thousand, um, two hundred thousand. I think it was a month in his trucking business, and and he was nineteen years old, and he does it by by not being too freaking proud to do a service business. Now don't there's no there's no pride in entrepreneurship, right? If you're getting into the game to be the the Andre, the successful entrepreneur, get out. It's not how it's going to start. It's not how it's going to be. It is not like it is a way for you to change your situation. If you're willing to sacrifice for years, if you don't go in with the expectation of sacrificing for years, get out. That's what I would say, because the people who have those get rich quick stories, they're freaking lucky and they're the minority. There's only it's it's very rare so plan for it to be long plan for it to to not go as you hope plan to learn a lot of stuff your opinion is one one opinion they say n equals one meaning your your data set size is one your opinion is not generally right you need to talk to other people validate it with other what, what other people are thinking if you go out and you you like you say you do a pop-up or something and you're not moving products Something's wrong with your pitch. Something's wrong with your product. Something's wrong. You got to fix it and iterate and iterate fast. Literally, what do they say? The the, the definition of uh, I forget what the hell it is, but like if you're you you got to be crazy to think if you do the same thing to expect different results. Um, so this is the stuff where like I would say to people, find a way to make sure money, and then pound to, plan to pound that in because. 
you get one chance with an investor. And by the way, the other thing that I would say, and I think I remember I mentioned this when we first connected is get in the business to not make yourself rich, but to make your investors rich. Right. And the reason why is because the second you do that, you're rich by association. <laughs> so if an investor comes in, their money is more valuable than the money in your pocket. And I'm not saying this, by the way, I'm not really we don't really put up cash into investments. We put in sweat. And so we're co-founders with our brands. So when we put up cash or something like that's that's why initially for Beard Club, I was passive advisory. I'm not that was just a passive investment that I had to get active on because the business wasn't trending where it needed to trend with other businesses. We get in and put our sweat and our skills to use. We don't just put in passive cash. If somebody's putting in passive cash, that's the most valuable cash. You better protect that. And so when investors put their money with me, they know that I am not going to lose their dollar. If I do, I'm going to make figure out how to make it up. And so literally it's it's very important you don't take investor money and then go do something else with it like picture that as like your your that's the money you got to use to make something work and you shouldn't look at it as like oh well you know they took risk they know the risk yeah they do but that will be your last investment because people invest based on what you've done and they'll take there's there's usually only one you only get one shot to really take risk so I'd rather be my own investor, bootstrap it, sweat longer. And, you know, this makes it tough for guys with other responsibilities. It, it's, it sucks when you see entrepreneurial minded people who got baggage. And when I say baggage, sometimes it's beautiful baggage. It's a family, right? Like that's beautiful baggage, but it's baggage nonetheless. So you got to work even harder. You got to sacrifice even harder. You're sacrificing your time with your family, which is even more valuable than any dollar. This stuff is like, you know, if you if you think about it and frame it right, entrepreneurship is hard, but you can also freaking win. But you better be in for a hustle and a ride and pivot and every day sweat. Like you said, outbound, not inbound, not waiting, not sitting, saying, oh, my site's live. Where are my sales? Like that's step one. That was me in Poughkeepsie basement building product, expecting customers to come. Never going to happen. I learned my lesson. I will never do that again. You always have to have a plan to acquire a customer. It is going to cost you money. If you don't think it's going to cost you money, I mean, eventually, it will eventually cost you money. It should. Um, we're working with a brand right now. It's called Walter Picks. Um, these guys are phenomenal. Love the founder. Love the, the founders. Love the team. Head of product. They built a fantasy sports insights app. Amazing machine learning. Uh, founder understands what good partners look like, incentivizes the team properly. He has built an ecosystem for success around him. Um, Sam Factor is his name. Um, he's doing an amazing job. And I can't disclose his numbers, but I will tell you, business is on fire. It is to the, it's to the moon. Um, and uh, it's not going to slow down because he has the right incentives, the right people around him. And, um, you know, that's what you need. Like, you need that... Um, and, and candidly, like we came on as partners and it was for him to take an idea and bring us on as partners. So he had to, he brought, he gave up a lot, right? In terms of equity, because if we're coming in and putting our sweat, like there's opportunity cost. And um, at the end of the day, like, I think it was the right move. I, I think he agrees. Um, I think ultimately um, 
you know, it, success takes surrounding yourself with successful people and uh, getting a team that's motivated, like, and, um, and trying to do it, like, make sure you do it in a way that you're small tests for incremental success, not blowing that full investment very early. Love it, man. Brian, bro, I appreciate you. This ain't gonna be the only time I have you on the show. I'm gonna get you back. No, I'd and love I, to come back, yeah. And I would love to, with your permission, write a potential case study on Beard Club, both for my own knowledge and understanding, practice my writing skill, but also identify some more lessons learned for our listeners. But in the meantime, you know, how can people support Beard Club how can they support what you're doing at a uh, Wellfell Ventures? Yeah, so um, Beard Club is a is a great brand if you're in the market for a trimmer. Which uh, if you're buying off the shelf, what trimmers are on the shelf in the store? You're probably in the market every year or two. <laughs> um, but with our trimmer, it lasts a long time. So check out the trimmers, check out the growth products, check out uh, anything to help help with your beard and uh, put your best face forward. Um, and then for the other brands, like check them out. Like uh, you could check out uh, Walter Picks. Um, this is a lot of Iotti Smart Home is an amazing smart home business that we're working on. Um, there's Pooly. It's an app for pools. Like there's a bunch of stuff going on. So check out our website. You can see the the, the businesses there. I will say if, if you become a customer of any one of those businesses, you should get a lot of value. We do our best to connect people with value. So uh, I'd love for anyone to check out what value offerings we got out there. Love it, man. Appreciate you. To all our listeners, be sure to check out the Beer Club and Wellfell Ventures at the link in the show notes. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Dog Whistle Brandon newsletter. If there's a topic you want me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, shoot me an email at mikeawearironbound.com or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. Until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. Dog Whistle Branding is brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media, where we provide no-fluff and high-impact brand strategy for better-known businesses. We believe that audio is the future of publishing, and we're committed to leading the movement for the veteran entrepreneurial community. You can learn more by visiting our website, ironboundmedia.com. This series is powered by the Lions Pride, a professional training and coaching company for badass founders. We serve mission-driven, high-performing small business owners with at-the-ready resources, battle-tested tools, and full-service support. We're proud to support veteran and other badass-owned businesses at every stage of growth. You can learn more and get more at thelionspride.com. Mm-hmm.